joining us today on a virtual view. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Beiju Shaw, a PharmD with DoxyMe. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Shaw. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Yeah. So could you go ahead and tell us a little about yourself? Sure. Uh, yeah. So, so I'm I'm uh, actually a pharmacist by profession. Fun fact: I haven't encountered many pharmacists who are working with telehealth companies, but I have wor- worked with a lot of pharmacists who do practice and use telemedicine as part of their practice. But yeah, I you know I I started my clinical practice in around 2010 at MUSC Health, which is a large academic medical center here in Charleston, South Carolina. You know, that, that was really my first kind of foray into sort of the, the world of healthcare. And, and, you know, after a few years working in the inpatient setting as a pharmacist, I, I quickly transitioned to more of a systems level role. And that was in our joining our pharmacy informatics team at the time. Now, this was around the time when we were implementing a new EHR system. Many of the folks probably recognize Epic as the name of one of the vendors. And, you know, I I sort of quickly became this champion uh, for our enterprise to ensure quality and safety, specifically around the medication use process with, with these systems. So, so that that's sort of like kind of how I got started. But you know, uh, real quick, the fun fact, just because we were talking about this right before before we started the podcast, you know, is you know before my healthcare career, I actually was, spent many years in the IT industry. Was a bit of a gamer at heart, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I actually graduated from computer information systems, and so you know, I spent a few years in the IT industry, and you know, I've always kind of had this technology interest you know it's always i've always been interested in the sort of the frontier of new information systems so needless to say when i discovered this intersection of technology to improve healthcare that's when it really got exciting for me right that's really interesting because i talk to a lot of folks who start off in the healthcare space and then eventually move to sort of integrate technology into what they do but it's rare that i talk to somebody who's done it the other way around yeah, and you know, on on both sides, I think uh, what we realize as as healthcare professionals is is that we have this ability when you're kind of in the systems level domain, you have this ability to impact patient care at a larger scale than you would normally do when you're having one to one rounds with a team or, or with a patient. So you know, fortunately, I was able to recognize that early on in my pharmacy career, and, and you know, build build a, a sort of a roadmap for myself through that process. Very cool. So where did your initial interest in the field of telehealth come from? Where did that start? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I'll kind of give you the version as it happened to me <laughs> uh, <laughs> and in real, almost in real time, right? So, yeah. so during the pandemic, I actually left, you know, after about a decade of working at MUSC, uh, I left the medical center to join a, a health tech company. And, and, you know, at the time, they were primarily solving for um, a, a supply chain problem for hospitals. And this is something that I was very close to, you know, working with at the academic center. So, so one of the main solutions that they were solving for was how to reduce drug diversion in the health system setting. And so during that time, I got to learn a lot about how point solutions can impact workflows and how, how they can drive different outcomes for different organizations around the country. But also around this time, I had suffered a major healthcare complication myself. It was actually an unexpected medical issue. You know, I had 
a really hard time in my life, to be honest, where I spent many months figuring out how to simply cope. So, you know, <laughs> kind of, I guess, interesting that the truism that we often hear when they, when people say health is wealth, it really was the case in my, from my perspective, because I was on this extended hiatus from work where I was just kind of on pause. And, you know, fortunately out of this experience, I was actually able to nav navigate my health back to this baseline. And I often tell folks that virtual care might have actually saved me from having any adverse events, mm -hmm. additional adverse events in my patient journey. So yeah, so that, that was, you know, that was a really major critical piece here <laughs> in part of the story. After that experience, it shifted sort of the healthcare lens that I looked through. And I, I told myself that if I get better or when I get better, this is what I want to be part of for the next foreseeable future. And really to help others to use virtual care technologies in a way that can help really save lives or help the quality of life for others. I had known, just kind of a bit of a plug here, but I, I had known Brandon Welch. He's, he's the CEO and co-founder of DoxyMe. Um, mm -hmm. I actually had known him through my academic life at the medical center. Uh, you know, I've collaborated with him. Uh, actually, I was a faculty guest speaker at some of his postgraduate courses. And so being completely transparent here, he was really sort of this, the key to bringing me into his company. And so I could help kind of take on that mission of supporting enterprise customers, in fact, as a senior telemedicine success manager there. No, that's so cool. And it's always really neat to hear from people who have personal reasons to be so invested in developing health technologies and in telehealth. Um, I find that those people are the uh, the, be the best champions for telehealth as we move forward. Um, so that's that's great to hear. So your work in telehealth, what does that look like? Yeah, so so over the past year or so, I've actually had the privilege to support a lot of different types of customers. You know, I, I've worked in a customer success role, and the segment I've specifically worked under is our enterprise team. So we help support many enterprise, government, and also tech startup companies within that segment. So it's been a very wide range, a broad range of, of different types of customers and, and the role has been very customer facing. So it's really kind of trying to figure out how do you make your customers successful by meeting their outcomes or their goals and really kind of leveraging, maximizing your knowledge and your experience from as a healthcare professional to be able to kind of do that. So customer success role in general in health tech companies, it I think is a very good one for folks who bring that sub, sort of subject matter expertise and healthcare background to the picture. So giving that sort of trust and credibility is important, but also the knowledge of what, what are the actual workflows that occur in health systems? You know, what, what are some of the nuances, right, of the processes and policies, you know, that these organizations have to abide by and how do you sort of navigate all of those intricacies to then maximize the solution that you're implementing. I think that's, that's really part of it. So I'm, I'm actually one of several telemedicine success managers and every one of our TSMs, as we call them, has a healthcare professional background. So it's quite interesting because I, you know, I think that really gives a good insight onto, you know, what our approach is in terms of like, customer success. Going back to your point here, you know, my, my current role day to day 
is changing. And so right now I'm actually in the midst of building best practices and resources to help guide clinicians and health systems on different success pillars. Mm -hmm. And so one of them is compliance and regulation. We've got an exciting project coming out this this year. We're, we're launching the Telehealth Success Institute. We also have a Telehealth Success book that's coming out that sort of shares more about these five pillars of success. But compliance and, pres- and specifically cr- prescribing in telemedicine is something that I'm building expertise on so that way we can ensure we have the right answers for the questions that our providers are asking us. So we do a lot of work in making sure that folks can be compliant providers, especially when they are uh, working with telehealth and providing care that way, just because it's such a developing landscape right now and has been since COVID that those changes are so rapid that when you're a provider, keeping up with staying compliant can be such a challenge on top of the work that they're already doing. Oh, 100%. And by the way, I, I may be fanboying a little bit today, but you know, I, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of the telehealth resource centers across the country. And oh, good. A, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Yeah, really. I, you know, I actually um, presented a few months ago at the California Telehealth Resource Center um, yeah, yeah. on the future of prescribing. And, you know, it's one of the things you realize there's this community here. There's this mm-hmm. like, you know, fair, it's almost like the academic medical sort of setting where, you know, right, yeah. re- really emphasize learning and education and then sort of refining that to, to improve, to improve our healthcare system. But this is like on a larger scale. And I, and I really have fallen in love with the, the resource centers. And so definitely a fanboy moment. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good, because I know a lot of the work that we do isn't just trying to like make guides to make sure that people can read and figure out what what the correct way to do things is. Of course, we do that. But a lot of it is around community building and building a base of professionals. So when prescribers or uh, folks from healthcare systems or whomever comes to us and asks us a question, we can't only answer the question. We can also say, here are some other folks in this space who you might want to connect with who have experience in this particular field. Yeah, community matters. I mean, that that's really it, right? Uh, we're kind of facing similar problems and we all have to kind of, what do they call it? Sort of tribal knowledge. Like every yeah, system yeah. I've encountered has tribal knowledge and often that's not often shared or it's not often like, you know, learned from by others. And it wouldn't be that great, great thing if, if we had a community to do that. Uh, so to your point, it's been great. Um, and, and just, just kind of just as a segue to the conversation, I, I feel like, you know, I started out really at the tail end of the pandemic, you know, with, with this, this side of the industry, you know, I began after almost like after that sort of hockey stick growth curve had taken off, <laughs> right? Kind yeah. of more, it was getting more stabilized. So it, it was really great to learn and benefit, you know, the benefit was like learning from folks who were in telehealth for a number of years and have had bring all these lessons to to the table. I, I get to soak that all up. Yeah, no, I'm in a, a similar place where I started in my current role a little over a year ago now, like a year and a half. So I came in as the pan, we were transitioning away from the pandemic back into air quotes, normal operations or the <laughs> new normal, as we always say, right. <laughs> that, that phrase we always hear. But I really have got to benefit from seeing all of the work that was done, not only during the COVID pandemic, but prior to it. So I, and I'm sure everyone else who's coming into this space so much later, 
are really benefiting from the work that has already been done and the community that has already been built. Yeah, you know, the analogy that comes to mind of that time, or the time that I kind of skipped was, um, <laughs> it, it really, it, it makes me think of people were building the plane while it was still mid-flight. Yeah. It's kind of how, how I would imagine it to be. I, I wasn't there, so I didn't know, but, um, you know. <laughs> Yeah, see, I, I worked in I worked in COVID response from the public health end. Prior to my role here, I was with the Indiana State Department of Health doing emergency response and preparedness. So I got to see the plane being built from that end. And I can only imagine in something like telehealth where uh, we were really like, as you said, the hockey stick or the J curve was happening. I, I can't imagine how that uh, <laughs> that plane looked like when it was being built. <laughs> hundred percent. Oh my gosh. I, you know, I, I sort of, um, you know, I, I feel like it, it's been a great kind of learning, you know, just from the professional development side of things, you know, for both of us, I feel like it's, it, it's a great learning opportunity. And so that's something that I, I would say is part of my role here is constant learning. I mean, mm-hmm. like you, you said, you know, there's been a lot of changes with COVID, but also, you know, after COVID post pandemic, you know, we've had a lot of changes in our in our laws as well as in our practices and and even solutions you know and so it, it's just you know you become this lifelong learner also right and and i think the heavy emphasis emphasis there is uh you know being from academia uh, as well as our sort of leadership sort of coming from academia it's a good good mindset to have because how else are we going to iterate if we don't learn from the past and learn from the research uh you know but going off on a bit of a tangent here so <laughs> Let's let's go back to our let's go back to our topic here. Of course, right before we do though, I do want to reiterate and and support the fact that being a lifelong learner, that's how you succeed in this telehealth space just because things are yes. developing so very rapidly that somebody who was an expert 5 10 years ago doesn't have any idea what's going on now just because things have changed so quickly. So the folks who really do well in this space are the ones who are willing to learn and who are willing to uh, keep up with that and and continue to educate themselves as this field develops. So yeah, just a hundred percent supporting that point. <laughs> but to go to go back to our topics before we go too far down a rabbit hole, hole on this. Um, so since COVID, as we've said, there have been significant regulation changes for telehealth and. How would you say those changes have impacted prescribing? Because I know that's something you have uh, been building your knowledge base in. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, let, let's let's not forget, you know, the pandemic really kind of shook things up, right? It, it really, it was really a catalyst for telehealth adoption, but it also did shake things up in, in a different way. So, you know, what I'm seeing now is, you know, across the U.S., there's so steady signal of improving how our regulation framework interacts with how we actually operate in healthcare. So what I mean by that is both from a federal level as well as state level, what we've seen is during COVID, what we saw is this whole framework basically go into this flexibility mode. They, you know, it sort of shifted into this mode where clinicians could operate while, let's say, while not being able to take an in-person visits, for example, you know, they could prescribe controlled substances. And that was a, that was actually probably one of the biggest major changes or shakeups because as folks who are listening in 
might know, there's there's something called the Ryan High Act, mm-hmm. and that was a federal registration that was executed in the early 2000s, and essentially it was to prevent any prescribers from prescribing controlled substances without uh, w- you know without in person visit. You know there there are reasons for for that, you know, uh, that we won't get into in this conversation, but, um, <laughs> you know, essentially it was to prevent harm in the, in society, in a public kind of set, in a sense. And so, you know, so that became a bit of a, a barrier to providers who wanted to prescribe for legitimate purposes, control mm-hmm. substances, right? Uh, we're right. talking about pain medications, we're talking about, you know, anxiety medications, hormonal treatments with testosterone, like all of these things now fell into this requirement that you had to have one in-person visit before you could prescribe any of these agents. So the COVID, actually, there's an exception within the Ryan High Act that says if there's a public health emergency, then you can waive this requirement, which is great for those two years, right? It was a great thing in some sense because it allowed that flexibility to happen. And during COVID, we couldn't really have in-person visits. So it was kind of one of those things where it needed to happen. Now what we're seeing is there's been a one-year grace period offered. So, you know, we still have some time to, to kind of have that those flexibilities in place. But I think what we realized out of the entire experience is that there are things that did go wrong or could go wrong, and there are things that may have benefited from this sort of flexibility. One of the things that we saw in, in the media was we had a, a number of new startup companies, uh, direct consumer companies um, pop up and I won't name names, but there were a few that sort of came up and, you know, they're in the news about over-prescribing or inappropriate prescribing ADHD medications, all control substances, right? You know, they're often done without any clinical, like very little or minimal clinical judgment and, and you know, just sort of the standard of care was in question, I guess I should say. And so that that was a bit of a spotlight. Perhaps the, the flexibilities sort of boosted that, right? But on the same token, there were cases made where it legitimately helped. So, you know, substance use disorder, you know, we have uh, cases where uh, buprenorphine uh, had, had uh, been able to be prescribed. And access is a big issue there because these patients who are going through substance use disorders, it's, it's, these are barriers put in place if they have to go to an in-person clinic or a visit. And so telemedicine, you know, helped with some of that. And so, so now we're seeing, you know, what are the benefits and risks to, to some of these flexibilities that have emerged? And then how do we learn from that? How do we look at the outcomes, the research behind that? And then how does that inform our legislator so that we have a, a, good way to protect the public from harm and then B, also enable access and uh, equity for patient care from that prescribing perspective. So, so control substances is certainly just like one facet of it, but I think it was a very important part of that landscape for prescribing. And I, I do think that that is kind of emblematic of what we've seen among a lot of these telehealth regulations and things that have been relaxed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. There are so many things where it has improved access and has been such a good thing, but we do have to be cognizant of the fact that there are risks and challenges that go along with this. And 
sort of finding that sweet spot in the middle of like ensuring that there's the greatest amount of access as possible, but that it's being done in a way that's safe and is also guaranteeing patient care. I think that's the complication we're seeing now. Agreed. And I think, you know, I, th- I think as we kind of move on, because now now we have this opportunity to really look at this from an evidence-based model, right? Like we have this greater adoption of telehealth, which then gives a, a larger you know, sample size or population to sort of like conduct research on. And now we have ability to then, you know, look at that research, share that research with our lawmakers, advocate for that in a way that's evidence-based and can really drive a shift in, in care. So again, yeah, to your point, we have to look at the risks and the benefits, but we also have, we have to do or continue to do more research. Yeah. And one thing that COVID did do was give us a large amount of folks suddenly using telehealth on which to conduct that research. So uh, data lag aside, I look forward to seeing what those studies look like in a year or two years, however long it takes for us to get that data all uh, analyzed and put together. (laughs) Well, the lifelong learner in me is super excited about that too (laughs) as well, Danielle. So (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So moving on to talk a little about the future of telehealth, how do you think telehealth is going to change in the future? So I think I think there's a few things that kind of pop into my head as we kind of talk about this. So thinking about let's specifically around prescription abuse or drug abuse in general, you know, like, I mean, we're what are we in the sort of like this third wave uh, or third era, I would say almost of opioid abuse and, and sort of these drug wars that are occurring. So that's the main theme that certainly the government is looking at. Uh, the DA and other agencies specifically on how do we curb some of this drug abuse and, and misuse and, and diversion that's going on. So we have majority of states have actually adopted these programs, these prescription drug monitoring programs, and the essentially they're just rudimentary databases that track patients that are on these agents, control substance agents that are they are they sort of getting uh, duplicate prescriptions for? Uh, are they seeing over 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 utilization for in the, some of these patients? So there's this like really great, you know, framework that's being built right now across the U.S. with these databases, right? And then secondly, we're also seeing different states adopt in their legislature adopt electronic prescribing systems and measures. And so now we have this ability to track from the prescriber to the pharmacy, actually, who the patient's getting their dispensed medication from, end-to-end, you're able to track these sort of patterns. And, and so what I see in the future is perhaps, you know, we'll see maybe some, some of these systems become more intelligent. So intelligent in terms of interoperable and intelligent in terms of maybe using different de- detection algorithms to kind of look at where do we need to target to see some of this abuse happening? How do we proactively look at that so we can curb it before it, you know, gets bigger or gets more significant? And how do, how do we make sure we keep that sort of under control? So I, I feel like that's kind of one area, one really interesting area from the pharmacist to me, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's worked with drug diversion. You know, that's one area that could be very, very fruitful if it's done correctly and it's actually, you know, it's done well. So I think that that's one area of interest. Another area of interest I think would probably be uh, around 
around some of these exceptions that we're thinking about with controlled substances in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other exception here is this of the Ryan High Act is actually this special registration exception. And and that was something that was was supposed to have or was expected to take effect actually uh, in 2018, in fact. Um, it's and, been a while. <laughs> and it's been a while. So, you know, th- this is kind of coming back full circle almost, I feel like. Right. But, you know, the underlying idea behind this special registration pathway is that clinicians who want to prescribe a controlled substance via telemedicine without this in-person visit will just register with a DA for the special registration. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there's there's a lot of concerns behind that. Uh, you know, logistics, how does the DA, you know, kind of uh, make that sustainable? How do they enforce it? You know, there's all these other questions that are, you know, we have to figure out, but they, you know, I think, I think it's a promising signal today. They're actually having listening sessions, I think in DC, I think this month or, th- or next month, I can't remember, but very yeah. soon. And, um, you know, some of it is around special registration. And so I think there's an interesting signal that, you know, we may be moving towards, you know, clinicians actually having a special registration to prescribe controlled substances. So, so again, there may be ways to tackle this where, we can still provide access to some of these drugs like buprenorphine or, or similar agents and, and also still uh, reduce the, the harm or risks uh, involved with, with prescribing these agents. So, so I think those two are definitely things that are on my mind. And I will say, lastly, just kind of just because we're sort of now, you know, two or three years into this like high growth stage of telehealth, Education and training opportunities is where I'm really kind of excited about too. How do we train the next generation of clinicians, right, with some of these technologies, as well as ourselves currently? Mm-hmm. How do we stay up to date? So I think, you know, there's a lot to be said there. And, and I, again, that's, this is another reason why I think we may be establishing, you know, the Telehealth Institute is to kind of look at education and training from that community aspect that we talked about keeping training and education in the forefront of our minds as we move forward is going to be vital in making sure that we have not only telehealth technologies that can be usable in the future, but providers who know how to use them. I love, I love that. That that's, I'm going to have to borrow that, uh, borrow that line <laughs> completely. Oh, feel, feel free, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> so what does your future in the realm of telehealth look like? Let's be honest. Telehealth is here to stay, right? You know, maybe maybe it's a hybrid approach as part of the standard care practice, in person and and virtual, a bit of both. But I think I think it'll differ by you know different types of specialties, uh, practices, as well as just individual provider or patient needs. So, you know, it's it, it's going to be around for the long haul. I think, and, and I th- think it, it's it's one of those things where you know, you look back and you're like, I can't believe I was a pharmacist, and then and then you look back and you're like. <laughs> Oh, I can't believe I did informatics at one point, you know, and then you look back and like, oh, wow, I, I can't believe I'm in telehealth. Like, right. It's, 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 it's an interesting journey. It really is because it's like, we build up this toolkit, you know, as part of this healthcare journey or any, any career actually. And and then we realize, oh, we have these tools that we've used in, in a previous role. It's Mm -hmm. now really applies to this role and we can, you know, we can basically talent stack as we go. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's probably a benefit of being a lifelong learner, right? That's uh, probably yeah. part of it. <laughs> but, you know, my, I think my future, uh, you know, it would be just kind of making sure that we, 
either a maximize the the potential of some of this these technologies for clinicians or we maximize it for the patients that you know they serve i think that's really the overarching goal and and i do see you know in the future i daniel i do see greater integration of different tools that can help facilitate either as adjunct or as a core solutions facilitate care some of the things i'm thinking off the top of my head around like interpreter solutions and translation solutions maybe in real time you know services where you know they, they get around the language bar- barriers I, I had a my 80 year old father-in-law hospitalized uh, you know just earlier this year and language translating interpreting and healthcare language to him or some of his immediate family you know it's hard it, it's really hard yeah for sure and, and so how can we do that better how, how can you make sure that they understand the patient understands the care that, that they're receiving and then how do they how do they communicate back to the clinician what you know how they're feeling or what symptoms they're truly kind of seeing so that's something that is very near and dear to my heart and i feel like we'll have you know at the point of care we'll probably have some great technologies that can interface with these solutions ai co-pilots perhaps you know mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm thinking perhaps we can have AI co-pilots launch while they perhaps they hear a conversation midway, they detect a drug-drug interaction. Wouldn't it be cool if, if there's an alert on screen that tells a patient or tells a clinician, hey, there's something you need to, you've missed or this is what you need, you, maybe you need to talk about. So there's certainly, certainly opportunities here as we go down the path. Putting on my pharmacist hat, it always comes back to medicine <laughs> or drugs. So Right, right. No, that's really interesting to me personally because I'm on a couple different medications and I didn't realize that two had an interaction with each other until I put them both in the tool on my phone and they told me, hey, you shouldn't be taking these together unless you talk to your provider about this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, if I wouldn't have put these in this tool, I wouldn't have known. And my provider did indeed have adjustments to my treatment because of this thing I figured out because of like an AI tool. It was, it was a really interesting experience for me. That is patient-centered care right there. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You actually did it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm going to be a health advocate for myself. That's great. That's great. For sure. Well, and, and just to add to that, you know, it may not even be drugs, right? It, it could mm-hmm. be other data insights that you might discover as a patient. And mm-hmm. then, you know, how do you get that over to the clinician who needs to know about it? Or, And so we, now we have these conversations today. We're having these conversations about integrating remote patient monitoring systems even to mm-hmm. virtual care. You know, RPM is, is a hot That's topic. something I really love. I, I, I'm very passionate about RPM. <laughs> I mean, I, I believe it. I, I actually wear an Apple Watch. Like mine's like first version, so it's like I know it's probably like really old, but <laughs> but, but it does it does the same job. It it basically lets me like lets me assess my heart rate when I'm you know out walking or on a jog. I'm able to like you know measure a few things just to make sure I'm staying healthy and, and well, right. and, and you know take that to the next level, which is like can we measure blood pressure asynchronously from the patient, and then can we deploy that to the clinician? and see a trend over time, perhaps in a very, very clean dashboard, you know. Now, these are things that will reduce the burden of workflow for the clinician. It will perhaps maybe provide better insights, right, to the patient when they're actually talking to them. And then from the patient's perspective, maybe there's a component of adherence and staying compliant with your, let's say, your medications or staying compliant with your practices, you know. So there's a lot of 
amazing benefits I can see with this type of system. And yeah, as a pharmacist, ad- adherence is, is medication adherence specifically is a very, very big problem to solve for still. For sure. And I think all of this has a part in sort of whole patient care and sort of integration of all these different forms of care that a person is receiving to make sure that they're one healthy person as opposed to a bunch of interlocking problems. <laughs> I love that. That's another line I'm going to have to steal now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good today. <laughs> I need to record on Fridays for more often. <laughs> so Dr. Shaw, if folks want to reach you, how, how would they do that? Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. If, if folks want to just kind of Uh, connect with me or message me on LinkedIn. Happy to always have a conversation. Yeah. Other than that, you know, threads is a new platform I'm on. So I guess you could hit me up there. I'm still kind of new to that. Uh, It's the (laughs) no longer Twitter now threads kind of uh, format, (laughs) but um, yeah, you know, I think those are the two areas. If if you want to reach out, definitely can send me a note there. All right, cool. And yeah, I'll put your information in the episode description too. So folks can just scroll down there. But beyond that, thanks so much for hopping on today and chatting with me for a little bit. I really appreciate it, Dr. Shaw. Thank you for having me, Daniel. It's been a great conversation. We'll have to do many more. Great, for sure. for listening to a virtual view. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.